Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with London-based editor Nick Emerson. His work includes the feature films Start Up, Lady Macbeth, Greta, and Ordinary Love. We spoke via Skype about his latest film called Emma with director Autumn DeWilde based on Jane Austen's comedic novel. Several of my questions refer to scenes you can access on PVC or on my Vimeo channel. Let's talk about the uh, With Whom Will You Dance scene, because I thought that had some interesting coverage, and uh, I wanted to kind of talk about why you chose to go to your close-ups at certain times or why you chose to be at cer- on certain people at certain times and, and uh, just some of those decisions if you wanted to talk about them. It's a scene that we had actually tried it a number of different ways. One way was actually to start the scene in those tighter shots. Autumn is a director who does not like to shoot, you know, huge amounts of coverage. As certain scenes we did, but in that scene, for instance, we had a two shot from behind that sort of pushed into the actors. And then we had those very, very big close-ups. At one point, we had decided to start, as I said, on the, you know, the close-ups and then go out. But it kind of blew this beautiful shot, that which we liked, which had this sort of tension pushing into the actors and wanted to hold that as long as is possible. At one point, we had started it on the close-ups and started it on Taylor Joy was because we wanted to feel, you know, we wanted to just get a sense of, you know, basically being in her point of view from the get-go. But we decided that ultimately it was more useful to be uh, in a more neutral point of view for that scene because it's at a point where actually both of those characters are beginning to change. He is beginning to realize that, you know, he can't just sort of fly off the handle and be a very patronizing man towards her. He's seen something in her and he can't be that way all the time. So he's growing at the same time that you know she has realized that she has made yet another mistake you know and so it was decided that it's sort of a more neutral point of view that we wanted to be inside both of their heads because you know it's kind of a, a, a turning point of sorts in the film you know one of the things that makes me think of is that that was maybe a decision to start in the closes that happened when you were just cutting the scenes by themselves and then when you learned the context of the whole story or started to see the arc of the story play out in the film then you switched it is that more how it was or no um i mean I, i'm just trying to think actually in the assembly i mean i think i probably did i mean the um start on the two shot but we did experiment with getting yeah you know, as i said greater access to her at the beginning of the scene you know and there's a little bit of text actually cut that from from that scene as well but no certainly I think in the assembly I had started off that way because I was so impressed with that shot, you know. It's a scene that you're not going to be able to make too many cuts in because we only had those two singles. And as you've seen, they're very close, you know, so they're quite aggressive when when you do cut to them. So, you know, we did sort of have to sort of pick our moments for those. And also because there's another character that enters, the actor's turned away. But that was a style choice that you know that um autumn had wanted to make but yeah no i mean it stayed like that for a while and then we decided 
oh god are we missing a little bit of access to her in this moment so we decided let's try with the close-ups and then you know where we ended up with I, I think is good you know the other thing I was thinking of with that shot the way you used it is when you are looking through dailies probably it's kind of a special shot that you go oh I got to use this you know this is obviously the way that the director maybe wants me to get into the scene yeah yeah absolutely and you know i try certainly during the you know the assembly stage or during the production stages i try not to sort of second guess you know my instincts as well i i you know i started off in documentary film and that has really informed how i approach scripted narrative is that you know i very much watch everything and respond to the material as it comes in almost like a documentary and i build little palettes of the most interesting parts of the scene. And then I construct a scene around that. But that was definitely one that I, you know, it had scale and it's a shot that is an establishing shot. You can see that they've moved to a different location, but it's also that thing of something about seeing their full bodies in those costumes and in the frame together was, it was very exciting. And I don't want to misquote Hitchcock, but he had always said, you know, that if you're, if you're making a love scene, you know, you need to see the characters in the same frame at the same moment, you know, and there is definitely a sense of in those single shots that they are separate because they're not in the frame together, you know? So it's always useful, I think, in the, in those sorts of scenes to see them in the frame together. Seeing some of the geography. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also just the tension between them and their physical relationship to one another, because, you know, especially in that time period, you know, that was so important in terms of uh, what they were allowed and what they were not allowed to do. I mean, they were obviously left allowed to stand, you know, with one another, but not often would people be allowed to sort of stand alone like that. And, you know, so it does have this sort of sense of high school kids, you know, having a private, private conversation, you know. The sense of the time and the sense of the culture at that moment and how how much that was a part of your conversation maybe with the director of pacing of dialogue scenes maybe or the choice of how you choose to cut people to show their separ- the separation of men and women. Talk to me a little bit about any kind of conversation you might have had with the director. The dialogue, it takes certainly for an audience, you have to train your ear into hearing that kind of speaking because it can be quite wordy. And I am pleased that, you know, the way the script was written was that it was quite faithful in terms of the dialogue, the original, it was faithful to the, you know, the Jane Austen text. And there's always a temptation is to simplify that dialogue and to pull a lot of dialogue out and to make it cleaner and more understandable. But what you soon begin to realize is that, you know, an audience, so much is being told through the visuals and through the, you know, the actors' performances and is contained within their performances that if, if, you know, somebody doesn't pick up on every single nuance of the language, whilst many people who are familiar with the text will do, they're going to understand the scene from a dramatic point of view and what is going on. So that was one thing was we definitely discussed about not trying to oversimplify that language and try to water that down. You know, there were times when we were, you know, we, we had to do that, but we tried to keep it very, very much as, you know, sort of maintain that complexity, if you like. And I mean, in terms of the visual, I mean, there was definitely lots of things that Autumn, the director, she and the cinematographer did in terms of the framing, in terms of how, you know, people existed, uh, you know, how they they moved, you know, I mean, the actors were, were very much schooled in terms of how, how they moved. And I mean, one interesting thing that you might um, be interested in is also just in terms of the sound design when we got to the, you know, the 
supervising sound editor and the mix and, and so forth is that none of the shoes you know would have made any noise you know the temptation is as i'm sure you know in sound is to add everything and add a lot of foley but they did add some things but it was just very soft fabric because they kind of glided everywhere and they were in this soft fabric. So there wasn't that sort of many, you know, footsteps that were added to, you know, to those moments, apart from the men, although the men at times did wear almost like slippers inside as well. So all that stuff was kind of muted down, you know, but yeah, no, there was definitely conversations about, uh, you know, about that and about, you know, how much of the world do you want to explain, you know, in terms of the etiquette and what they might need to understand. But we kind of took, you know, took the view that people will come to the film with a certain degree of knowledge in that system of class that existed in England at that time. You know, the, you know, they understand that there were people who had wealth and, you know, they didn't have much to do to get that wealth. It was just inherited and that that was the way it was. And if you were fortunate enough to be born into it, like Emma is, you know, you were you had very little to trouble you you know which is at the beginning of the film there's a quote from austin that says she had lived 21 years with very little to, to distress or vex her you know and that's the way she went about you know her life and you know that's the way she, the character decides to start to meddle in things it's because she's nothing else to do you know <laughs> she's bored you know did you read the book before you uh either edited it or were hired no, I didn't. And I, yeah, I kind of do that deliberately. I mean, I read it at school years ago, but I didn't go about rereading it because I think that it's very easy to sort of to get tied up in the novel. And at the end of the day, you're making a film and it, it is an adaptation of the text. So you have to remain faithful to the text. But for me, I'm a great believer of making the story work for a film. It's just, I'd like to, to respond to things as they appear, because if the scene is working and it's telling the story, then that's a fresh reaction to that without having the prejudice of the book sort of whispering in your ear or being afraid to cut a line of dialogue because well, it's a famous line in the book and you know, you just, you've just got to focus on telling the story for the movie, you know? That sounds like it goes along with your um, idea of coming from documentary and just going, hey, I, I got the footage that I have to, to work with and the book's not going to make too much of a difference at that point. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's definitely an element with a film like this. Yeah, you know, you want to make sure that the, you know, the fans of the Jane Austen are, you know, would not necessarily be disappointed. You know, at the same time, you can't be a slave to those things. But I, ho I hope they're they're pleased with it. You know. Yeah, I just interviewed the Call of the Wild guys uh, last week, the, and that's another adaptation. And uh, they they were similar to you. They're like, well, Call of the Wild in the United States is a required reading in, in the high school level, and so they read it in high school but not since then i just think when you're making a film especially when you're editing a film there's a lot of voices already you know and it's obviously the job of the directors to if they have any concerns in terms of you know the text and the book it's you know for them to filter it through to me as well and i try to just respond to, to, to what's going on in front of me you know is there any other way that you tried to steep yourself in the world did you try to what how did you deal with music were you listening to music of the era Yes, when I'm editing a film at the assembly stage or during production, I try to leave music away from the film as late as possible because I find that it can, you know, prejudice your cutting. And as I'm sure you know, it can be used as a crutch to maybe support something that isn't quite working. But in this instance, because the way the film was was photographed and, you know, Autumn was very keen for this sort of uh, the clockwork choreography to take place, 
in the film. And so it lent itself to this sort of musicality and this dance that there was certainly, I was adding music earlier than it, than, I, than I usually might. But um, we were definitely listening to a lot of music of the period and a lot of music actually that Jane Austen herself would have listened to, which was 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 very inspiring as well. But we also spoke about, in terms of the music of the film, as wanting to to do something original, but not to go down the route of, you know, using contemporary, you know, modern day music, you know, in the film. So we did a little bit of that in terms of using some folk tunes. But our reason for using the folk tunes were that they were actually English folk music. You know, its genetics started off in that period that Jane Austen was living. So there is a sort of a lineage that goes through to the storytelling and the and the kind of vibe of those folk songs. So that sort of, in a way, gave us permission that we thought we could use these in the film, even though they're not, you know, necessarily period accurate. I immersed myself in the rushes in the film as, as it's presented, because the way I always feel about these things is that during the production period, you're scrambling around trying to control this mass of material and try to, you know, basically assess and, you know, see see what's going on and make sure that everybody is happy with what's coming through. But then at a certain point after the shoot, I think the film starts to basically control you and tells you what it needs to be. And it soon starts to reject things that are not right. And through that editing process, and again, that, you know, that comes very much from a documentary background is trying to sort of control all this material. But then you start to uncover something in the in the cutting of it that you start to you expose the film and you expose the story by cutting all this massive material down and that's what i mean when i say that it sort of starts to to control you it sort of brainwashes you in a way you know sure I, a lot of people um word it that the the film speaks to you know starts telling you what it needs to be yeah yeah absolutely and and, and sometimes you know i think that's not necessarily in a very overt way sometimes it's just a subconscious thing it's just it's getting under your skin and it's just follow your nose in, in, in that respect you know you mentioned the clockwork choreography of the the blocking I'm assuming and um, the movie itself does that make it how, how did that affect the editing to make it harder easier it makes it, it makes it easier in some instances and then also it can box you into a corner in terms of maybe you have to change the intention of a scene because for whatever reason we needed to change something it doesn't quite work sometimes that provides difficulty but then other times it's just this joy that you have these actors swimming through this scene in this wonderfully choreographed way and i think i like those sort of challenges you know i think that's the that sort of old school approach of designing a scene and designing the the choreography and designing the blocking so that you know there aren't a million different ways of cutting it i i really enjoy that because i think as a director just having faith you know in, in their vision and knowing where they're going to be and you know sometimes when you just have as i'm sure you know you just get sometimes they just switch on the cameras from the word go and they just shoot all day and then not in this case but sometimes there has been much thought that has gone into where they might want to be they'll just hoover up coverage but um it's nice to see things that are choreographed and okay we're going to start here and it's going to move to here and there's going to be a handoff here um yeah no it's it's wonderful you know challenging at times but uh, really good were there some of the other scenes that you wanted to talk about i can talk a, a little bit about actually uh about the carriage scene. I mean, I think the title of it is Miss Woodhouse is Near. And that's one of the first scenes that they actually shot on, on day one. It's a very key scene because 
Anya Taylor-Joy's character has realized that she has made a huge mistake. She has been trying to make this match between the other character, Mr. Elton, and, and her friend, but it's become apparent that he is interested in, in her. And so it's this key moment where she realizes, you know, she's made a huge mistake and her friend is going to be upset. But it's a really good example of a very long dialogue scene where your choices about where you might decide to play something is key. And we had this wonderful performance from Josh O'Connor, who plays Mr. Elton. He has a lot of dialogue. He has more dialogue than her in, in that scene. You know, and the temptation is just to look at him delivering this great performance. But you have to realize that where does the drama lie within the scene? And the drama lies within the scene in, in her realization that she is screwed up. And that's always when I'm editing a scene is I'm always asking myself, where does the drama lie and where does the story lie? And that's the story is that she's her realization that she's messed up. So you have to ultimately play a lot of it on her reactions, you know, on the character's reactions. And so much of film editing is about watching characters receive information as opposed to seeing them speak. That's just a good example of that. And it's a, it's always a fine balance because you want to see him speak as well, but more often than not, you know, it's more interesting to watch your protagonist absorb some key piece of information because it informs how the character is going to behave in the subsequent scenes of the film, you know, and also, I mean, it's a good one to point point out is that it was actually shot on a on a soundstage that scene, so it was quite noisy with snow machines and things for the background. And it's just it's a very key thing is that you have to always put those things aside, and you know, not six weeks into editing, think there's a problem with the scene just because you're tired of listening to this other background noise that has yet to be cleaned up properly. I mean, it takes a bit of practice to be able to put that away and not to think about those things, you know. I'm sure the actors gave you great emotional moments and beats to to play off of in your editing, like the example of the the reaction shots you got in the carriage scene. But so much of the time, right, they're, they held their emotions. It seems like they held their emotions closer or there was a, a cultural thing of not wearing your heart on your sleeve did that make a difference in how you were trying to find performances yeah i mean definitely there's a containment that is going on sometimes you know within the performances but you know they do occasionally at key moments in that scene they do have bigger outbursts but the thing about for me about actors is that so much of what's going on is in the eyes you know i mean that's mainly what audiences i feel are looking at and if the actor is not doing very much if they're just transmitting a thought you know at that moment and the camera is looking at them you know the audience if they're engaged in the story and everybody's doing you know the jobs right they will project onto that and help and just creates this glue or this moment that everybody knows you know what is going on so often the actors they don't have to do anything too huge or, or, or too big did you guys have discussions about tone and how to control it where tone needed to be at certain times the greatest advice that autumn you know gave to me when we were talking about that was she wanted to, it to be almost have elements of screwball comedy in the film. And that was, you know, and to hark back to sort of the earlier films of the you know, 50s and the 60s, where, you know, the screwball comedy was, you know, was very much in, in vogue. You just have to be careful of those things that the more humorous moments don't overtake the story that you're trying to tell. And it's very easy to be seduced by those things and think, oh, this is a funny moment. It must be in the film. 
but again, it's it's all those things about just filtering it and knowing when it's it's too much. It's, is the style or the tone of the film overtaking the drama of the moment? Is it is it trampling over something key that we need to to communicate? You know, is it too loud the tone at that particular moment, or is it do we need to turn it down? And uh, I kind of always follow the actors as well. I let them be my guide as well in terms of the tone. You know, if if they're reading something into it that they think that it needs to be something, I'll definitely explore that for. The time being but it, you know it's only until you look at the film as a whole and then you realize those sorts of things those odd left turns or things that are totally just not quite right for me they always jump they bounce right at the screen and it's like okay we're gonna have to dial this down a little bit here or you know or turn it up or it's not funny or funny enough you know um you go with the rhythms of the film in, in, in that instance you know uh, but those are things that you have to wait for, right? You can't be making those determinations while you're cutting dailies. You've got to be waiting to to, to decide those things with the director when you've got a, a rough cut, an assembly at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you definitely have to keep your eyes open for everything when you're just doing the assembly. And, you know, I tend to just do one version of it and just see how that plays. And generally, you know, they, they do have too much of everything. And as you say, you just can't possibly tell in that moment whether it's right or not. You know, it's only until you see the whole, the whole film in context. And there was a lot of that in this film of dialing things down and, you know, turning them up at certain points and, and just being aware of trying to get a tonal balance that is acceptable to the audience. But, you know, at the same time, you don't want to iron those things out. And there is that temptation as well as to iron things out and make everything flat, man, flat and even. Yeah, and you can flatten things out. And that's something that you have to be very wary of. We want to make something light and fun as well. So you just don't want to iron all those bits out for the, the service of the drama or the story, you know. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Emma editor Nick Emerson. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage. Backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected. And integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now back to my interview with Nick Emerson, editor of the feature film Emma. Can you think of specifics that you and the director talked about when you were watching say a rough cut or, or or some early version of the film that you're like, ah, oh, you know, we really need to, this scene is a comic, a comic scene that is breaking things up or vice versa, that something got too dark and you needed to lighten it. It was quite a long assembly, you know, I mean, and it was all great. That was the problem that we, you know, we ended up having to take quite a bit out from the film. There was some moments at the beginning of the film, there was a, there was a church scene where, 
there was an awful lot and it's this classic thing of the beginning of the film of you're trying to get everybody grounded establish you know who everybody is and you know what their dynamics are and there was a scene at the beginning that we definitely had to tone down some of the humor because Emma was trying to there was a there's conversation between herself and her father establishing another character Mr Frank Churchill and this was very important that this information came across and we realized that there was an awful lot of other humorous bits going on in the in the church between other characters and other interjections that we just had to slightly dial down because in the first 15 minutes of the film, you were being bombarded with so many names, characters and introductions that we just we really had to focus it. And, uh, you know, and that was definitely a moment where we had to sort of turn down some of the more uh, screwball comedy elements and just keep the narrative going and the storytelling being told so that they, those other moments didn't, you know, become distracting or, you know, feel like there was a, a bomb going off here when you needed to be concentrating on something that was, you know, contained within the scene. In the, in the carriage scene as well, there was there was moments we had a choice to make about in terms of how aggressively Mr. Elton would respond to this sort of humiliation of being rejected by her. And we had an immense range from Josh O'Connor in terms of how big he wanted to go, how angry he wanted to get. We paired back some of the angry moments and just let him build to being angry as opposed to, you know, just making it more of a progression towards the anger because we could have sort of turned it up even further. But I mean, that's with all scenes, you know, in in films, you you just got to find the balance of what's right, you know. How long was that first assembly, do you remember? Um, I think it was just over three hours, believe it or not. I mean, that's good, you know. I mean, we ended up taking maybe an hour of film out or something like that. You know, there was a few scenes that we took out. A lot of it was, you know, taking dialogue out and tightening within the scenes that existed as well. You know, the film tells you which scenes ultimately need to go. They just start to feel redundant or aren't advancing the story because it's got to be a story that flows and that, you know, engages people. Um, those are hard things to do, though, when so, when you or that director are like, I love this scene. and Because sometimes yeah. it's the great scenes that have to go. I think there's a David Fincher quote, isn't it? Is that, you know, you're not finished your film until you've cut your favorite shot out of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it is so true. I mean, I, I try not to fall in love with scenes. And, you know, I do fall in love with moments, but... I don't know whether you know, there's a great book, Interviews with the Editor, Sam Osteen. There was a sort of a hierarchy that he always spoke about. Film first, scene second, moment third. And you've got to sacrifice the moment to save the scene. And then you have to sacrifice the scene to make the film work. And it's, you know, that really stuck with me. That's a really useful thing to to go by, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, ultimately, you got to cut stuff out, you know. But again, like, I'm quite ruthless and sometimes it gets me in trouble. But I enjoy that, you know, because I think... At a certain point, you know, and I wouldn't recommend doing this, at the, you know, at the start of, of the processes, sometimes it's good, you know, just to, you know, take something out and, and see what it does and take a scene out because it's the only way that you'll know if it needs to go back in or if a moment needs to go back in because it'll scream to be let back in if it needs to be there. I don't recommend doing that at the start of the process because you can damage a film, I think, quite quickly. And my process is always when you're sitting there with that block is for the first couple of weeks anyway, is just to nibble at it, to try and uncover the film and expose it and, and, and see what's there as opposed to sort of going in very ruthlessly and, 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 and taking things out. Now, I think there's a time for that later on down the line, but um, certainly not in the, in the beginning, you know. Did you guys cut any scenes out that you put back in? 
yeah, there was definitely a scene that stayed out for quite a while. Uh, that uh, was a scene between uh, Mr. Knightley and Emma at Christmas. And w- w- the reason why we decided to try taking it out and it stayed out for a while was we just worried that it might have been a repetitive beat. Then we realized it sort of it made everything else around it, the sequence that the scene was contained in at Christmas, it just made it feel a little bit uh, frivolous or, or redundant. And it, there was a lot of great stuff in, in the sequence, even without that scene. But we just realized that we needed to stay with those those two characters. And it was, it was a scene where they, they have an argument across a dinner table. And it was just, we were like, okay, we were just seeing them bicker. You know, do we need to see them bicker again so soon? But it was absolutely necessary. We, we slightly changed the scene slightly in, in the cutting to make it feel less of a repeated, a repeated I suppose, you know. How did you make the leap from documentary to feature or narrative? And do you go back and forth? Um, I have gone back. I did a film with Kevin MacDonald, great fiction and documentary filmmaker. But I, I, w- I went back to do a film with him because I had this opportunity he wanted to meet. And I was like, I, I couldn't, I was such an admirer of his work, his documentary work that I, I couldn't not take the meeting and I, I went back and did this film about a Chinese artist uh, called Skyladder um, with him. But to make the transition, I mean, it was difficult because like I said, it was, I was in Belfast and there wasn't a huge amount of, you know, narrative or dramatic, you know, fiction work going on, scripted work going on. So I was very lucky that I was given an opportunity to uh, cut a short film. I was always interested in doing films and uh, whilst I was cutting documentaries and I was given the opportunity to, uh, to cut this uh, short film and subsequently became friends with the directors. It's a duo of directors, a woman called Lisa Barris de San and a guy called Glenn Laburn. And the film did well, the short film did well. And then they got their first feature film. And then I was lucky enough to be asked to go on to that feature film. They managed to persuade the producers to, to let me onto it. So I'd, I'd done my first one. I had to continue to do a lot of documentary work and um, a lot of television, factual entertainment. And I did another feature film and then another and then another. And I was still doing documentaries, you know, up until around feature film number six or something like that. And then after that, I started just to do the the, the films, uh, you know, I made the transition. I, I did a film here in London that sort of allowed me to, to, to stay here, basically, and to continue to, to do feature films. It was another period film called Lady Macbeth. It did reasonably well here in terms of people enjoying that film and certainly got my editing name noticed a bit further a field than, than, than at home in, in Belfast. So that was a big jumping point that I was able to move on with work here and actually getting an agent as well. I mean, and I, I was able to do that after I did a uh, film uh, startup, which I co-edited with Jake Roberts, who I'm sure you know, uh, Jake cut Hell or High Water. And we did startup together and, and that was a film that sort of a British film that was, you know, enough people saw that it was enabled me to get an agent and they were obviously very helpful in getting me further work. So yeah, all those things, you know, were, were very helpful. Can you think of any other advantages or reasons, ways that your documentary work helped your narrative work? I think what it does is, I mean, it definitely trains you 
in storytelling. There's just, I mean, it's, you know, in a documentary film, you would have all this material and there would be no narrative that would be, there would be a, a sense of an idea of a story that you wanted to tell, but you very much in documentary film, you're drawing the narrative out of the material that is there and you're, you know, you're you're telling a story from that material. So, so I treat that the same way is that I, I, you know, again, try to uncover the story with it within, obviously there's a script, but as, as you know, once the script's been shot, that's set aside and it's, you have this lump of material that you've got to draw a story out. But also what it does is it treats you, and this may sound funny, is that it treats you to be a little bit more ruthless and to treat um, the material really interrogate it and go, you know, is this really doing its job, this material? And because you're so used to doing that in documentary where, you know, you discard so much, just because you know they've spent a very expensive day or afternoon shooting something gives you that ability to be make a judgment and say well it's you know it's absolutely not necessary it's not working we need to take it out of the film you know so it it, it treats you to you know or teaches you to be less worried about those sorts of things documentary is very much a distillation of all these things that come down to it's like a fine sauce that gets reduced and reduced and reduced and that's the way i i treat the the narrative of you know scripted material as well you know you kind of alluded to the way that you approach the narrative material you're saying you create selects at the beginning when you're watching dailies like how do you actually go about okay so a bunch of dailies come in you your assistants broken them all down into scenes and then you dive into a scene what do you do basically i mean i start with the first slate and i mean obviously you know the director has they have their selected takes but i i refer back to that at a later date but you know i'll just open up the bin I will see the different uh, tiles. I like things to be arranged, you know, so I can see the, you know, the frame, a representative frame of each setup. And I just start with the first setup and the first take and I watch it and I watch all dailies. You know, there's not a frame that I, and sometimes that takes forever and forever if they've shot a lot. But, um, and then I just mark it in and and out and I find something that's interesting or a, a line that is, you know, is read a certain way. And I just build this, string out of all these little bits and then I just go into it and for me it's almost like when you're studying for an exam when you're at school you write things down and it helps you somehow remember them I just have from the documentary you know and I've had this ability to to be able to recall material so if there's a look that is interesting because I've watched it and I've put it into this you know, sequence uh, of selects, it'll come to the surface. If we need something, I'll be able to remember back and it'll prod at me that there was there was something there. So yeah, no, I basically build these selects and sometimes they can be very long. I'll start to cut the scene and I'll think two questions I will ask myself is what is the point of the scene and where does the drama lie? And I basically just start from, from that point. And also point of view, you know, who, whose scene is it? But yeah, I'll just start from there and then I'll cut the scene. I'll try not to revisit it. I mean, the only time I revisit it is when I get a scene that's maybe butting up against it, you know, that comes in and, you know, the join won't quite work or I'll find a better way to join the two scenes together. And then I'll just build it like that, you know, scene by scene, sequence by sequence. But I, I tend to leave them alone and just, you know, wait and see when you, when you run it back, you know? Um, but yeah. And, and are you cutting the scene from your selects reel directly? 
Yeah, pretty much. I'll generally find the, the key moment of the scene and I'll build it around that and then work out from there. And uh, But yeah, primarily from that. And then if there's something that I'm not sure about, I will you know dive into the continuity notes and look at the selects and see what the director you know thought of of any given moment the directors you know often it's nice when they're surprised by oh this is not how i intended the scene to be cut at all and you know sometimes that can be quite shocking but sometimes they really love that because if they can see the scene very fresh and that's you know it's different from from how they imagined but there's also you know there's obviously times when you look at a scene or you look at a bin and you just see you know there's a there's an elaborate shot that you know was designed to set up the scene and you know you'd you know you'd more often than not go for that you know you don't do it in, in, in an antagonistic approach of of sort of i'm, I'm just gonna you know th throw it all up in the air for the sake of it but definitely um you know that's how i go yeah so i, I build that select reel and, and and work from there you talked about how um sometimes when you juxtapose the two scenes together, they don't quite work or, you know, you need to find a different transition shot. How soon do you put any scenes together? As soon as you can? As soon as I can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's as soon as I can, because I like to be able to see how the sequences are, are, are building in terms of those transitions. And especially during the production period, because if I feel that there's not enough connective tissue being shot, that you know can help join these sequences together that's a surefire way of uncovering a problem you know that you start to put these scenes together and then you start to realize there isn't enough walking shots or you know shoe leather as they say in the business but ultimately you know more often than not gets cut out but it's important to to, to realize that you know when you might need some of this because it provides space for the rhythm of the storytelling and uh, and all those things so no I, i'll put them together as as quickly as i get two scenes together and it's just you know because you can during that production period you can feedback and there might be a, a strange continuity error or a weather error or something that's just you know, nobody has really been aware of and until you put them together, suddenly, you know, something doesn't quite work or you suddenly have a thought or, oh, I haven't seen this house before. And then you sort of look at it and go, oh, well, we haven't actually seen an exterior of this location at all. And it's it's not scripted to be shot. And then that's when you pick up the phone and say, look, I think it might be useful to get this character walking into this building and you know it's often stuff that gets cut out but you know it can be vitally important to notice at that stage that it's you know that's missing that you don't want to have to go and get a, a pickup shot later on down the line of some exterior with nobody in it you know it's always better if you can have your actor in that space in that exterior so that's the kind of thing that that's useful for for, for looking out for is those sort of uh, joins that are either you know not working for a spatial awareness thing or a location but also emotionally as well if something isn't quite clicking you know you have a sequence of scenes and you can feel that there's maybe a, a story beat that you can identify that's going to be a, a emotion that's not quite there that you can identify that might be problematic later on down the line and then that's a conversation that you can have with the director and think well something odd about this is, is this going to cause us issues later on when we're you know trying to get the story to work thank you so much for sharing with everybody no thank you very much and it's uh you know i've been uh, listening to your podcasts for some time so it's, it's great, great to be here oh thank you very much and uh, now you're part of the team
Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Nick Emerson. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast, give it a review, please, and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.